It looks really good. It finally hit me that Delaware's not just playing to keep it close. Delaware's here to win. But if they're going to really lock down in a game, this would be the one to do it. Overall, I think this is their identity now. There weren't enough things that you and I could say on the broadcast to praise Eric Carter. I do have to put out a formal apology to Darian Bryant. It's over for the Eagles. When you're only better than the Cleveland Browns, you're not very good. This is going to be the Delaware defense like, through and through. If you lose, you're leaving yourself on the bubble with all of these other teams that I would say are just as good as you are. Losing Nicole, that's a big part of what we did a year ago. It's a process, and we need to really lay a strong foundation of who we are as a basketball program. You're listening to Blue Hen Sports Cage on 91.3 WVUD. Hello and welcome to Blue Hen Sports Cage, the flagship sports talk radio show for 91.3 WVUD. I'm Brandon Hovek, today joined by Jake Lampert. Jake, we thought we'd have a lot to discuss on today's show. And that was before the New York Knicks and the Dallas Mavericks set the NBA world ablaze. The trade coming in this afternoon from multiple sources, including the usual suspects, Shams Charania and Adrian Wojnarowski, a deal is in place for the Knicks to send Kristaps Porzingis, along with Tim Hardaway Jr., Courtney Lee, and Trey Burke, to the Dallas Mavericks for Dennis Smith Jr., Wes Matthews, DeAndre Jordan, and likely some form of draft compensation, likely the Mavericks' first-round pick. This news coming after earlier today, it was reported that the Knicks and Porzingis met, and Porzingis expressed some frustration over the direction of the franchise as the now, fourth-year player sitting out this season with a torn ACL suffered around this time last season, and the Knicks among the many teams tanking toward the top of the NBA draft with the goal of claiming Duke forward Zion Williamson. Lots to wade through here. It's the perfect place for us to start the show. Uh, Jake, you support the New York Knickerbockers, so I'm sure you have more to say about it than me. So I'll, I'll give my piece first here and then uh, ISO and give way to you. To, to go from the next side. But from the Maverick side of things, taking on a lot of salary, that's the main reason why the Knicks would be interested in this. You're taking on Courtney Lee. You're taking on Tim Hardaway Jr. But if they can secure Kristaps Porzingis long-term, which is a question that we'll ex- discuss, and there's some reason to think that maybe Dallas isn't his ultimate destination, but if they can secure KP long-term, the Luka KP core finally gives Dallas that star power that it has so long craved, basically ever since they won that championship over the Miami Heat. They've been in the running, so to speak, for every single major free agent and every big trade target, but they've only been on the fringes of the running for all of those guys. Now they finally get a guy who comes with some question marks, but if he pans out, could be the perfect complement to what they have in Luka Doncic, who they swung and hit a home run with by getting with the fifth overall pick, uh, eventually in a trade, with the Atlanta Hawks. Now, from the Knicks side of things, it is a big gamble on the summer of 2019, where now the Knicks have two max free agent spots because of that salary they shipped out on this trade, but they give up KP, which was the best thing to happen to this franchise, probably this side of 2010 in the last couple of years. There hasn't been much to hang your hat on for the New York Knicks. Jake, your initial thoughts on the Kristaps Porzingis trade to Dallas. Idiots. Absolute idiots. You traded away the best talent, the best player, the best Nick 
of probably the last 30 years of play, you traded him away for a player you should have drafted in the first place, and you gave away more than you needed. You you better have Kevin Durant secured in a Knicks jersey. You better have had Kevin Durant sign a contract before you made that trade that said, I'm going to be a Nick. Because if he comes, another superstar comes, we'll deal with that. But you just gave away the last piece of hope any Knicks fan could imagine for two players you're going to let go and Dennis Smith Jr. This trade's really not about the players. It's that first piece. It's about the cap space and the Knicks thinking that at least if they make this trade, they have to think that they have a legitimate chance at Kevin Durant and somebody else to make this trade. Because you don't have to make this drastic of a trade just to get to that one max free agent spot. They could have done that in a couple of different ways. But to get to two max free agent spots, now you had to be a little bit more risky. You had to do something kind of outside the box. And this is exactly fits that definition completely. You basically traded Christoph Porzingis for the chance to sign two free agents. And if you whiff like they have so many times before on these big free agents this summer, that is... You gave up. Uh, I, he's not quite in the class as you know Anthony Davis is yet. Well, there was word that he was going to get traded. There was word that it was going to be Anthony Davis and Kristaps Porzingis in a trade right then and there, and inclu- including every Knicks fan ever. Nobody wanted that. We'd rather have Porzingis over Anthony Davis, whether that's because of talent, whether that's because we've latched on to Kristaps Porzingis as his last martyr in the New York Knicks jersey. So be it. But we want Porzingis over AD. We really don't want AD if it meant giving up Kristaps Porzingis. So, and I don't think the Pelicans wanted no, KP but, as a centerpiece right. anyway. And, and AD was only going to – it's broke before this whole thing happened that Anthony Davis is going to do a one year and then go to the Lakers. But the whole thing about this is if the Knicks do not get the first or second overall pick while the odds – uh, should the season end today, be very in their favor that they get the first or second overall pick. If they don't and they miss out on a chance at Zion, this might be the worst trade, period. Well, that's a big part of this, too. So the first component is, okay, they cleared a lot of salary space, cap room, in order to make themselves part of the running for Kevin Durant plus another free agent. We'll go through some of those names on who that second guy could be. But the guy that they've so long coveted and who has rumored some interest in New York is Kevin Durant. There's the thought out there that Kevin Durant, after finally getting his rings with Golden State and now as a free agent this offseason, would want to go to a team where he can shed the narrative of joining a super team and lead a team on his own to a championship. So they have that going for them, right? Can they get that done? We'll see this summer. But the second part of it is is this draft pick. And that's what we talked about with Anthony Davis. If the Pelicans wait till this summer, you find out who ends up at the top of the lottery. And now that asset becomes very valuable if it is Zion Williamson. This draft, though, is not very deep. Most people believe it is Zion and then a group of three or four other guys, a big step below him, and then a big step down from that. And with the way that the draft lottery has now changed, this will be the first year that the teams with the three worst records all have equal odds at getting that top pick. So previously, if you finished the year with the worst record, you had a 25% chance of earning the number one selection. 
and the Knicks are on pace to be, if not that team, the second worst team and have the second best odds. But if they fall into that three, now they just have a 14% chance at the number one pick, then a 13% chance at the two pick, and so forth. So the chances of getting Zion Williamson, even though this team's going to be horrible the rest of the season, are at 14%. Zion Williamson is going number one in this draft. So I don't think you can cling to that as a way to entice a free agent to come to your team. That That's a great thing for any team who winds up getting him, but I don't think you can bank on that. You have to do this deal knowing or thinking we're going to get maybe Cam Reddish or R.J. Barrett, and then what do we want to use to put that around? Are we trying to put that around Przingis, who'd be coming back from an injury, an ACL injury? Or do we think we can get these max free agents to put you know, this complementary piece more so than a centerpiece like Zion would be? You traded away a player with your sixth smallest contract on the roster. He was still on his rookie deal. Would he have asked for money in the future? Well, let's, sure. let's go to this now. So the, the piece that came out from Shams almost immediately after the trade was that Kristaps Porzingis told Dallas he's going to sign the qualifying offer next year. Right. So this is, this, at the end of this year, he'd be a restricted free agent. And typically in restricted free agency, you go to the market, the Knicks would say, go get us an offer. The Knicks have the right to match any offer. So he'd probably get close to a max salary from somebody. Right, which we'd give him and the if Knicks, you're a Knicks fan. The Knicks would match that. The wrinkle in this is if he accepts the qualifying offer, he's going to get way less money next season. But after that, he'd become an unrestricted free agent. Get so the thinking banked. goes, if he told Dallas that I'm going to sign the qualifying offer and then I'm going to unrestricted free agency, I'm going to pick my place. Did he tell New York that I'm going to sign the qualifying offer? And that, in part, led New York to think if he's going to leave us after this year, should we trade him now? Now, the thinking is, though, when all of these guys, at least my thinking is, when all of these guys eventually start talking about the places they want to play, New York is on that list in some fashion. New York's always on a list. The Lakers are probably number one on most of those lists, but New York's two or three. So if I'm the Knicks, I, I don't know if I would use that to be scared. Now, that's a wrinkle now moving forward. Okay, KP could come back this season, will definitely play for Dallas next season. But can Dallas secure him? We'll get back to that in a moment. But with the Knicks, you'd have one more year with the qualifying offer, or you'd sign him to a long-term deal as a restricted free agent. Either way, you try to keep him as the centerpiece, you would think. But maybe to them it's more valuable to have this cap space. Now, the other thing, too, is going to like the Dennis Smith Jr. aspect of this. Was there a deal out there that could have accomplished the goal of getting the max free agent spots while also bringing back something a little bit more interesting than Dennis Smith Jr. as the player centerpiece of this. You made this trade in less than seven hours. Well— I mean, news broke this morning. We don't know the the behind-the-scenes. This trade could have been done day two of the season. Yeah. But based on what has broke and the order on which the news has broke— they made an announcement that Porzingis spoke to the front office and expressed his disdain and that he didn't like how the team was going, how the organization was going. And then a few hours later, he got traded. So will it – is this just another another New York Knicks move like they did to Phil Jackson, like they did to Carmelo where they get all this information and then when the time comes, make the player look like the bad guy? Possibly. Probably. That could that could have been what happened or could could it have really been a quick turnaround? The answer to your question is 100% yes. 
The Knicks could have waited and got some package way better than one player, two max cap spaces, and a draft pick. And Dennis Smith Jr., while he is good, is not great. He's probably going to just fill the spot of Tim Hardaway, and we're going to be okay with that. But the thing that's so confusing to me, and a little aside, if you don't have Nick's Twitter, I mean, I'm from New York. All of the people I follow are Knicks or Nets fans, so we're all familiar with what's going on. The main buzz is, and as it should be, just why? I mean, we gave away a 7-3, pure shooter, great talent, best player we've seen for a weak package for two max contracts, and we have so many what-ifs that are in the air. One of the tweets that came out was like, I hope the Knicks are doing some tampering right now because we need it because we need to no, get Kevin Durant. That's, I mean, they, ac- they absolutely should. Right. If you're making this trade, like we said off the you top, to you absolutely something. should feel good about your chances of signing Kevin Durant. Because, oh, the, the because if you don't, then scenarios. this is insane. Right. If, if you talk to Kevin Durant incredible. and he said, I'm signing with Golden State at the end of the season, then there is no way you should make this trade. Right. If you have a really good assurance that Kevin Durant's like, yeah, I'm coming and player X wants to come with me. Okay, is there a better way to create that cap space? Probably. But if they get those guys, it's understandable to move on from a guy on a torn ACL to get a top three player in the league. But this is the Knicks. And you go back to the summer of 2010, LeBron, Melo, D-Wade, Bosh, Amari Stoudemire, all on the market. Everybody's dreaming up their scenario of LeBron James bringing a championship to Madison Square Garden, and they end up with Stoudemire, and he ends up being a kind of a disaster by the end of that tenure between him and Mello, that whole falling out, he punches the um, fire extinguisher box and cuts his hand. Like They had some okay years there, but it was a big swing and miss from what people had dreamt of. Same sort of thing when some of these other guys have come up recently as free agents or trade targets. So if it works out, in hindsight, okay, but judging it on its face right now, it's questionable at best. Should best-case scenario happen, and this is everything falling into place, Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, Zion Williamson, Frank, and probably Moutier. Dennis Smith Jr. And Dennis Smith Jr. is the next starting rotation next year, which is probably a championship team. Let's, I mean, let's... They go to the championship. Yeah, let's hold back our expectations. Golden State being Golden State. Yes, they lose Kevin Durant, but it's Golden State. Mm -hmm. And we don't know any other moves going on, but right on face value, Kevin Durant, Durant, Kyrie, and Zion with Dennis Smith Jr. and Frank can make a championship team. The line that the Knicks are on, I would give it 5% brilliance should it work. 35% comedy because this is ridiculous. And then 60% just the saddest thing that could have happened to sports. Yeah. It is a gut punch to all Knicks fans. And if you are um, a New York fan with the things coming out of the Mets front office, the things coming out of the Knicks front office, I'm happy at least for football I made a correct choice with my team and can at least support the Patriots. But with the Knicks and the Mets making no- noise out of their front office, which is just stupid, I hope just for my sake and every other Knicks fan's sake, I don't even want all three of them. Give me two of them. Give me Zion and Kyrie 
and I'm okay if we don't get Kevin Durant. I'm okay if we're a middle-of-the-pack eight seed that gets knocked out in the first round to the Raptors. Fine. Just get me out of this hole. You're listening to Blue End Sports Cage on 91.3 WVUD. If you're just joining us, we're breaking down the Kristaps Porzingis trade. KP going from New York to Dallas in a blockbuster move that few saw coming, if any. Uh, the Dallas Mavericks will now pair Porzingis with Luka Doncic as the New York Knicks prepare to make a big splash this summer in free agency with up to two max free agent spots they will have in the neighborhood of $75 million in cap room, according to ESPN's Bobby Marks. And Jake, you bring up the interesting perspective of, okay, how do Knicks fans view this? I reached out to my friend Jake, also named Jake, um, who's from New York, and all of his friends are Knicks fans, and I said, how, how are they holding in there? And they had the opposite reaction, but I think your reaction is is more justified because you've seen this script before. You've seen this with other teams. There might be a small sector of the Knicks fan base that now sees this and is still in the mode of photoshopping together what the next core is going to be and is super excited, and that was the reaction I got from my friend Jake. He's saying, yeah, his friends are talking about Kevin Durant and Kyrie and two years from now, the trade that's going to happen for Damian Lillard. That stuff, as you said, the, there's a chance that that happens and the Knicks end up looking great at the end of this. But it's the there's Knicks. a 14% chance they get Zion Williamson, right? There's no nothing they can do to change that. A 14% chance that they get Zion Williamson. They'll be one of the worst three teams, but then they leave it to the ping pong balls. What's the chance that Kevin Durant signs with them? It's high. Is it still probably less than 50%? Probably. And then you go to the next list of free agents. Kyrie Irving has said before the season he wanted to re-sign with Boston. Now there's a little bit of doubt surrounding that. And I think some of that will also play in with what happens with Anthony Davis, which is a whole other subject. But Anthony Davis and Kyrie Irving have been tied together a little bit. Clay Thompson is a free agent this offseason. Does he want to walk away from Golden State? Maybe he, he walks with KD, but now... If you're playing the narrative of KD building his own thing, it looks a little bit different if Clay Thompson comes with him. Jimmy Butler is a free agent at the end of this season. What happens in Philadelphia? How do those pieces work together down the stretch? Do they sign him to that max contract and keep him there as a piece of the core? Do they look at Anthony Davis? Do they do nothing of the sort and let him walk this offseason? Same thing with Kemba Walker. One-man show in Charlotte. Is he ready to join somebody else's team Or can the Hornets do something to bring him back there? Those are the names that Knicks fans will have to cling to. In addition to Anthony Davis, who's a free agent at the end of the 2020 season, but Davis saying this morning and overshadowed by this news that he's going to play out the one year on his contract wherever he gets traded to. And then after that, in 2020, he wants to sign with the Los Angeles Lakers. Yeah, which is big news for bad teams. Because if you're a bad team and you pay Anthony Davis all this money just to know he's leaving— you trade, not trade the money, but Anthony you give Davis. up your assets right, for, for one Anthony year Davis. of Anthony Davis. If you're a bad team, you're probably not going to do this. While it might be great for that one season, you might make the playoffs. You might be go deep in the playoffs. Once Anthony Davis leaves to go to the Lakers, you're left with nothing. And you can't even, for a team that's bad now, you can't even pretend to sell to your fan base, okay, we're going to do what OKC did, and we're going to have them in our, our building we're going to show him our culture. We're going to entice him to stay because you're going to have to give up your best assets to get him. And you're going to end up leaving. on a bad team with just him, right? Because you're going to have to give up your best players and picks to get him. The only teams that it probably still makes sense to think about a swing at Davis is somebody like 
Boston right, where they can assets. say, we're a great team. Look, we're going to go to the championship. Are you going to walk away from a championship team with Kyrie if we re-sign him? Maybe we can hold on to Jason Tatum and just give him everything else. If not, we'll have Gordon Hayward around, Al yeah. Horford around. Then you could see the argument to say, okay, we'll take the risk that he walks. But I think it shrinks the pool of teams down now that are interested in Anthony Davis. And it certainly takes the Knicks off the board with this trade here. This is the big difference between the MLB free agencies and NBA free agencies is the value of money. And in MLB free agency, you see it live. You literally see it live. Manny Machado and Bryce Harper are not signed. They are two great talents, probably some of the best in the game. And they don't have a a, a contract. Why? Because they're waiting to see who's going to give them the most money and is going to give them the best deal. In the NBA, Anthony Davis is going to go to a team that's going to give up a lot of assets. He's not going to get that much money. He's going to go to the Lakers. He's leaving his best chance to get the most amount of money from the Pelicans. He's leaving. He's, a- he's going to give up $70 million. Right. The, the Pelicans could give him the Supermax contract that nobody drafted. else can. Yep. The Lakers can give him $170 million. That's the most they can give him. Hell of a lot of money. Everybody would love to have that. Right. We're talking about $240 million and you that still the Pelicans have LeBron could give on your him. contract, and you still are going to have expensive players old, expensive players, which they will clear out with Anthony Davis, but you still had Lance Stevenson, you still have Rondo, you still have JaVale McGee. Well, they're they're one-year guys. Right, given they'll all probably clear out, but you still are going to feel the the waves of signing those players. It's all about winning in the NBA. Yeah. Anthony Davis is going to go to a team that he's going to win, and he doesn't care how much money he makes. Porzingis is it- going to opt out of the Knicks, who very well would probably have given him the Supermax. There's no reason to believe the Knicks as an organization, wouldn't give it to him when the time comes because he's their player. They they love him, and he's great. Um, but he's leaving the Supermax, who is still currently on his rookie contract because of the injuries he's faced. So that's a cheap player who is going to go to a team that's going to even get less money because he wants to win. Two interesting points you bring up there. The first is just that money is not important in the NBA. And we've gotten to a point where this sport has grown so much that the difference in what a team can offer, the home team, they've always had a financial benefit. They've always had something more that they can offer a free agent to be. They still have that, but because those numbers have gotten so high, $240 million to $170 million is not as big of a difference as $120 million to $75 million. Right. So Anthony Davis, $170 million, he's got a shoe deal, he's got this and that. He doesn't care about that $70 million he wants to win. Somebody like Kristaps Porzingis, if he goes through with what he said, according to Sham Strania, that he's going to take the qualifying offer, he could potentially be leaving $70, $80 million on the table coming off a torn ACL, and it's still a risk that he might be willing to take for that bigger contract the next year as an unrestricted free agent with the ability to choose his own team. So that's that's something that's really interesting about where we're at with player movement in the NBA. It is all dictated by the players and what they want versus just a pure bidding war between the teams and who they want to acquire. We initially, I mean, we said it a few times about Porzingis' injury, but that's a big deal. I mean, there's... Probably something that Dallas knows that New York didn't about Porzingis' injury or that New York knew that no one else knew about Porzingis' injury because you don't make this trade 
if you're not either fully certain that Christoph Porzingis is going to play or fully certain he's not. If he's not going to play, you can contract bounce and move around the contracts and do front office things. But if he is going to play, that's even worse for the Knicks and even better for Dallas because they're going to have Christoph Porzingis and Luka Doncic on the same court. Yeah. Like, if he... And I think and I would say the chances that he plays this season are better than he doesn't. Right. The, and if when he was still in the Knicks, the chances that he would play were very slim. Because the Knicks had you're a future trying, with him. You're trying to get a top three pick. Yeah. You don't want to win games. Yeah. And he's your long term right. guy. You, you need to keep your long term. Dallas, you have him on contract for the end of this year, and plus frankly, the qualifying offer. Frankly, he's not your long term guy. I mean, and with that's all due respect to Porzingis. Yeah. You'd but love him to your be your long-term guy, but he's not your only long-term guy. Right, you Luka have Luka Doncic right is your guy. He's not going anywhere as long as that team's intact. Right, and they have to like rank a tier list of who they're going to keep. It's going to be Luka yeah, if by you, a long Yeah, shot. if you made a list of highest trade value in the league, right. Luka on his rookie deal is top five. Right, yes. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. At the moment, Jake, we're going to turn our attention to Super Bowl week. We yeah, have the, the Super Bowl in... Three days plus how many ever hours are left here on this Thursday evening? Three hours till kick? Or two hours till kick? Yeah, yeah, six six thirty Sunday. Yeah. CBS Rams Patriots for Super Bowl fifty three. The Patriots in their third straight Super Bowl. The Rams under now thirty three year old head coach Sean McVay turned thirty three yesterday. Can they upset the Empire? We've talked about it kind of off and on on our shows the last couple of weeks, but here it is. Here's the matchup. Anything new? You know, as you've Further considered this game, considered this matchup that stands out to you? Not really. And it's what I said on, I think, last Thursday's show. There's just no reason to overthink and just not delve deep into things. There was a lot of overthinking last uh, week and two weeks ago with all four and eight of those teams, respectively. I'm just not digging too far into it. You know these teams' identities. You know what the Rams are going to hit you with. You know what the Patriots are going to hit you with. And just let it play out. I'm not doing too much digging into it because I don't want my mind to be so um, full when the game starts. But I think we know what we're just going to expect from both teams. If you were the Patriots, they do the whole thing after half where time and time again, score before the half, come back at the ball, score again. Last time out, the Chiefs gave them the ball first, and they had a methodical drive right down the field. If Brady doesn't throw an interception at the goal line, they go up 17 or 21 nothing. Just completely, you know, back and forth, run, pass, third manageable situations. If you're the Patriots, I guess knowing that you can kind of do it either way. If you get the chance to pick which you'd have, if you win the toss— What's the game plan there? Would you want to come out and establish yourself with that long 14-15 play kind of drive or play the more percentage play of taking the ball in the second half? I'm taking the ball right off the bat because time management for great coaches. And I was about to say Andy Reid in that. I'll I'll, I'll put Andy Reid and time management in the same sentence. But even when the Giants won their two rings, Tom Coughlin – their time management starts on the first possession and the first drive and the first few plays. So especially in the Super Bowl, I want the ball first. I want to dictate how the game is going to go. If I want this game to be high-powered, I'm going pass on first down. First play of the game, I'm passing. But if I realize that once that time comes, all right, we want to slow it down. We want to have another 
eight, nine-minute drive like we did against Kansas City, you can do that. And once you kick the ball off in the second, you'll have a better grasp on time. Your defense will understand the game pace. Your offense will already uh, know what the defense is throwing at you. So if I'm the Patriots, I'm taking the ball first. But if I'm the Rams, I also want the ball first because they're the more high-powered team. I mean, Todd Gurley is more high-powered than any other running back, and they have probably more explosive wide receivers and pass catchers. They yeah. might not have better ones, but they have more explosive ones. Yeah, you categorize Edelman— Gronk as possession guys, whereas Brandon Cooks, Robert Woods, they're more fixed. prone to big plays. Right. Yeah. They're be- and you would want to get the ball first because you just want to get the ball rolling. The longer you wait, the longer you cool down and start to freeze up a little bit, that's the worst it gets for you. I think I agree with you on both points. I'll add with the Patriots that if you can chew that clock in the first half and then give the ball back to the Rams with a Patriots lead, that makes the Rams a little bit more one-dimensional. They probably feel a little bit of a sense of urgency coming out of halftime. And if I can, I'm putting this game in the hands of Jared Goff versus Todd Gurley and C.J. Anderson. I want them one-dimensional. Goff, his best plays this season have come off that play-action game on the bootlegs. That's created by the gravity, the suction of the running game. I want to take that running out aspect out of it and put the game on Goff's shoulders. I think if you're the Rams, you take the ball first. But even if you don't end up with the ball first... That's the team to me that has to take the chances in this game, that has to make big plays in order to win the game. It was the Eagles last year. It was the Falcons the year before. When you're going up against the Patriots in a Super Bowl, they're more prepared for the situation. Most of those guys have been there before. I'm taking the shots, the chances, the risk on fourth down because if I don't, there's not a great chance I can keep pace with New England and Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. The Chiefs really only did in the second half because Patrick Mahomes was is amazing, and he, he's the 5,050 touchdown guy, and you don't have that on your team to bring you back in this game. I think you got to be risky, peddled in metal from the beginning to the start. Or excuse me, the beginning to the end. The good news with both of these teams is, and common misconceptions about the game, is that time management relates uh, relies heavily on your offense and defense. It's more special teams than anything because— Field position. Field position is the biggest part of it. I mean, if you start them at the one, you're probably going to get ready for more high-powered plays because newsflash, they have to move 99 yards downfield. But if you don't move them well and they're at the 50, they can slow down and do the same drive with the same amount of plays just with running. Or on the inverse of that, if you can survive those situations, if you get pinned inside your own 10, but you can sustain a long drive with – out your special teams unit helping you out, that could be a huge momentum flipper in the game, but that's very tough to do. You'd rather be the team that's starting at their own 40, needing 25, 30 yards for a field goal and 45 yards for a touchdown. The uh, special teams for both teams is great, and the kicking for both teams is great. In a season where on week one, day one, we saw kicking is going to be a problem. We saw ties and off just pure bad kicking. You have... Perhaps the best kicker to date in Steven Gostkowski. I was about to say, which one are you going to say? Right. Perhaps the best <laughs> kicker to date in Steven Gostkowski. You could say either of them. And the one best. of the best kickers of the future in Greg the Leg. I mean, you have a no. You have a, it's calming to know that if you need to take a field goal, you're happy to do it. Should like the Chiefs or should even the Saints. I don't know. They, they, no, they have good, good kickers, though. They're Will Lutz and Harrison Bucker, 
not to be scoffed at. But how about Cody Park? You, right. you know, Cody, that's a better Cody example Parkey's of a playoff one. team that did not have a reliable kicker throughout Even the year. Brett Maher on the Cowboys mm-hmm. is another kicker who is reliable but not as reliable as the There are questions the about guys. why is Dan Bailey not on this team. Right. So yeah. they, the idea that kicking on fourth down is not as much as a, a hindrance as if you had like a Cody Parker or a Brett Maher. I still think that the Rams should be aggressive in those fourth down situations, not because they should worry about missing the kick, but because – in more cases than not, they're going to need six rather than three up against this Patriots team to keep pace. But it does come into play if they just get to the brink of field goal range. They can feel good about a 55-yard field goal from Greg Zauerlein, where not a lot of teams might take that chance in the middle of a game because of that field position thing that you brought up before. If you miss that 55-yard field goal, now the Patriots are at their own 45-50 yard line moving the other way. But Greg the leg is reliable from those distances. You saw the kick against the Saints most recently, the 57-yarder that wins it. If he misses that kick, the Saints are in business needing 20, 25 yards for a manageable field goal of their own to win that game in overtime. It was a risky kick to put him out there for, but most metrics said he was good from 65-70 on that kick. And that's what Greg Delay can do for you. Vistowski maybe doesn't have that same type of range, but you feel great about anything from 40, you know, 45 to low 50s with him and below that he's going to hit it more often than not, and he's done it in all these big moments. He did miss, miss a kick against the Eagles last year, but it didn't really come back to bite the Patriots. I mean, the only kick in recent memory that was big was his extra point against Broncos uh, when Peyton Manning and company ended up going to the Super Bowl. Um, that was that play meant the Patriots needed to go for two, and there was a missed play, not a missed call, but there was a missed open receiver in Rob Gronkowski that we didn't hit, should have worked out, yeah, whatever, but... That was the only time where that one point really meant something for a kick. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. We're heading back to the Super Bowl. It is kind of been overshadowed this week by some of the crazy NBA news, but obviously everybody's going to have their eyeballs glued to the TV Sunday afternoon when the Rams and Patriots go at it one more time. New England in their third straight Super Bowl matchup against the youngster, Sean McVay, just 33 years old. Jared Goff, Todd Gurley, the young core that the Rams have talked a lot the last couple of weeks on how these two teams stack up one more go at it here before we make our final picks for super bowl 53 can't believe it's here like the super bowl's three days away and, and then, then no football and then nfl off season forever that's so weird um what are we doing just opinions well hit Thoughts? me hit me you had a couple change jake's oh, mind true yeah, yeah okay hit so. me with what you got um, Rules of the game. Yeah, first backstory for those who don't know it. It's simple. It's fun. It's easy. I'll make a statement to Brandon. Brandon's one job is to change my mind. These are statements that I might not believe in, and they could be statements. The first statement I give might totally contradict the second statement. They're all independent. Uh, Brandon's job is to change my mind on it, but the only caveat is he needs to talk about who I ask him about. If I ask him about the Knicks, he can't talk about the Lakers or the Dallas Mavericks. He has to talk about the Knicks, uh, unless, of course, it, both teams are in the picture. First thing comes to the Patriots, and out of their four backfield members and five, if you count James Devlin, James White gets the most touches and will get the most touches by at least 10 compared to everyone else in the backfield. The other caveat of this is I have not received these ahead of time. Right. So this Brandon is has all to think of off the dome, as they say. Um, all right. So I am a 
proponent of James White being a big factor in this game because historically he has. There's a Hall of Fame case, maybe not a great one, but there's a case to be made based on purely what he's done in the postseason that he should be in the Hall of Fame. The reason why he wouldn't outtouch everybody in the backfield is that this could turn into a line it up by formation, you know, James Devlin, 22 t- personnel, where you got the two backs, two tight ends. We're going to grind it out and we're going to possess the ball. We're not going to let Jared Goff have it. We're going to get the lead and we're going to make the Rams one dimensional in the second half. If that's the formula that the game plan, the game flow follows for. New England, then the running back to do that is probably Sony Michelle. He's been their first and second down guy through this late season renaissance when they've gone back to the power running game, when they've gone back to some more traditional style. And I think that that would be the case for James White being less involved. If they're ahead of the sticks, they're not in third downs where White's your guy on the passing downs, they go to Sony Michelle more. And he had over 20 carries against Kansas City, so he should be involved in this game plan against the Rams. I will say this, though, and you mentioned making the Rams one-dimensional. Out of every team in football, the Rams and the Cowboys are probably the two hardest to make one-dimensional because they are still comfortable running the ball in the third and still comfortable running the ball in the fourth yeah. because I mean, of how it, talented they are. But it still almost are. cost them against New Orleans right. that it, they couldn't it, establish the run. It hurt them in the end, but yeah. we have seen time and time again, late game, the Rams are still running on first down because of how much trust and how talented Todd Gurley is and for the Cowboys, Ezekiel Elliott is. So I agree that I personally think that James White will be the leading rusher of this game, leading toucher of this game. Yeah. I mean, we had that question last week of White receptions minus five versus keep to lead pass breakups. Right. And like, I could see White eight, nine, 10, 11 catches yeah. and then whatever, you know, he might even not get a carry, but... He'll be involved because he's going to be that receiver, that quick threat. Second one, we're going to stay in the backfield here. I think, or I'm going to say, that Todd Gurley and C.J. Anderson have the same amount of carries, plus or minus one. So either the same amount or one carry in favor of Gurley or two carries in favor of Gurley and vice versa. So a lot of this comes to how healthy Todd Gurley is, which I don't know the answer to. But if last news was he is healthy, right? If he's even close to being healthy, this is the Super Bowl, right? You lay it all out on the line. So I don't think he's going to be limited. So the case then for okay, you got eighty five percent Todd Gurley and fresh CJ Anderson. How are we going to split this up? A lot of what I've read and a lot of what's been analyzed with this Rams offense since they brought CJ Anderson into the fold in Week fourteen is that they like CJ Anderson on their inside zone, on their between the tackles. When they run inside zone, or they run a concept a lot of times called duo, which gets their guard and center on a two-on-one matchup. Basically, it's kind of a power play, but you don't pull the guard all the way around. They like C.J. Anderson on those types of runs, where they prefer getting Todd Gurley to the edge on their pull, their trap schemes, where they pull a tackle or guard out there as the first line of defense and try to get him on the perimeter or on outside zone, where basically the whole offensive line flows heavily to one side or the other. And that's the staple of this Rams offense, where once they get that established, they run a lot of bootleg, a lot of different type of jet action and play action off of that outside zone. So if they want to keep New England on their toes, they're going to mix those two things. They can do them both effectively. 
maybe a little bit more outside zone than inside running scheme. But if they want to keep New England off balance, it would involve using both of those schemes, right? And if they stay with tendency, which they could break because this is this is the Super Bowl and you got to break some of your tendencies because the other teams had two weeks to watch your, all of your tape. But if they stay with that tendency of Anderson on the inside runs, Gurley on the outside runs, then you're looking at that type of kind of 50-50 split. And maybe Gurley ends up with more touches because he's more of a factor in the receiving game. But as far as pure handoffs, you probably look at that you know, I, I would maybe say they're going to go girly a little bit more than Anderson, but you could see a world in where that's pretty even. Next one's a fun one. And I'm phrasing it like this because I want to hear your thoughts on the other side. I'm saying that the Rams will have more fourth down attempts that aren't kicks than New England does. And I just want to hear your other side of that. And that's the only reason why I'm wording it like this. Sure. The other side of that is Sean McVay has not been an aggressive coach this season that they do not go for it on fourth down very often. Fourth and goal from the one-yard line against the Saints kicked a field goal instead of going for the touchdown. A lot of other instances, uh, there was a great story by Riley McAtee on The Ringer last week that detailed, and if we had the time, I'd pull it up, but it, it went through basically all fourth down decisions, and at the top of the list, you got kind of the usual suspects. Doug Peterson was number one in both tendency to go for it and success in going for it. And Sean McVay was in the bottom third, between 20 and 30. And success-wise, they were fine. Just the tendency to go for it was was down. So when they do go for it, they were okay. Obviously, they end up the season, what, 13-3. and three. Like, it what didn't hinder them throughout the season. They pulled out more games that were close than they didn't. But he's just not a coach that through the first couple years of his career has been aggressive. So could that change in the Super Bowl? Sure. Should it change? Probably. But you know, coaches a lot of times just kind of stay to their guns, and, and they don't necessarily change, especially within the course of just one season. Last one. What do, what do you make of that? Why, why did you want to hear my side of that? Because I thought that the Patriots are going to go for it a lot. And that's because they, whether it's warranted or not, are not scared of the Rams running the score up on them. Because they believe that should they miss a fourth down, their team is good enough to get the ball back and they can march it back down the other end. I agree with that. Also, I agree with that. Difficulty to guard. Well, we should start from square one here. When I mean going for it on fourth down, the Patriots actually line up. The Rams do more fake punts make fake kicks more than the Patriots do. So that would be the uh, quote-unquote Rams way of going for it. But the Patriots are also better suited for it. I mean, Robert Woods and all them are vertical targets, and not that that's bad for fourth down, but for fourth down, you're not looking for 30 yards. You don't need 30 yards. You just need to get the first down. We can figure out all the rest of it after. But the Patriots have Edelman, Gronkowski, James White, even Devlin if it's a fourth and one, and Sony Michelle, they need to pound it up the middle. I mean, if it's fourth and one, Tom Brady, how many times has he been it. stopped on a sneak? Like, yeah. Never. Yeah, he could just sneak it. He's the and best at doing that. The Rams, Todd Gurley, while he's a talent, uh, CJ Anderson's better to run through the tackles because he's just chunky, but Todd Gurley's. Big two C's. Yeah. Todd Gurley's horizontal. He's a horizontal runner. So I think the Patriots are better suited, and I think they're going to go for it more. Uh, last one. Interesting, then, that we could, we were able to get kind of both sides of that. Rams 70, gone for it less, New England more. 70-plus points. 
Over under for this game is 56 and a half right now. You're saying 70 or more. I'm going to say, I mean, the main case against that is just traditionally these games don't go beyond that 28, 31 point range very often. Just if you took the average of the winning score and the losing score over the last 20 years, I think it would be in that neighborhood of like 28 to 24, something like that. Because both teams are generally in these games. Nobody pulls away. Um, last year's game was kind of an exception to that. Final score was 41-33, which would get over that threshold. But you literally had Tom Brady with the most passing yards in the Super Bowl ever. You had Doug Peterson being ultra-aggressive, going for it on fourth and goal, going on for it on fourth and short from his side of the 50, and Nick Foles playing in, like, magic Nick Foles mode. So the case against going over 70 points in this matchup is that those things that were exceptions, not the norm, come back down to earth and you get back to where we've been historically. Not that either team can't score 35, 40 points in this game. They both are capable of doing that. But just history tells us it'll be a close game, but it won't exceed 30 points for both teams. I don't think it'll go over 70. I don't think it'll go over 60, and I might actually take the under with the 56. But could it? Yes. And the big factor in that is the Rams because the Patriots can match pace. If you want to go slow, they'll go slow. If you want to go fast, they go fast. Right. They once came back from 28-3. to They can go quick as anybody, even though we keep talking about how they want to have these long drives and everything. The Rams are explosive. I mean, if you— the ranking of 30-plus yard completions, it was the Chiefs and the Rams. So you need to look at the Rams and say, if the score were to run up, it won't be a stop on a run-up, but it will be because of Robert Woods, because of Brandon Cooks and Tyler Higby and Josh Reynolds and even Todd Gurley in the passing game. So it's all on the Rams on how this game is going to work because if for a second you give the Patriots their time to dictate how the game is going— You've lost it then and there. I agree. Anything else on Super Bowl 53 before we come back from this break and make our final predictions? No, but I was scrolling through Twitter, and I'm sure you saw this. Another uh, good think-about-it question. Best player to never win a Super Bowl? Best player to never win a Super Bowl. Mine was easy. Mine was right off the bat, and it was Larry Fitzgerald. Uh, other names. Aaron Rodgers won a Super Bowl. He did. He won one. Yeah. Uh, Tony Gonzalez was another name that was up there as best players to never win a Super Bowl. Um, I I don't think the list should go any longer than Larry Fitzgerald. He's one of the, the best receivers ever, and he's on a team that is now scraping a team to have three wins. Hmm. It does take to some think work. It, yeah, if there's anything else that stands out to me. I can, I can hit the Google search um, and see. So the list that comes up, this is on Fox Sports, so I guess I'll say Fox Sports is credited. Um, We'll scroll all the way down to one. We don't need to start from the beginning. Their list starts, I scrolled way too far, at Dan Marino. Fair. Mm -hmm. Two, Larry Fitzgerald. Three, Barry Sanders. Four, Tony Gonzalez. Five, Randy Moss. 
That's a good one. That all makes sense, yeah. Randy Moss also played on like 7,000 different teams, so. Yeah, but, I mean, he's, he's one great. of the best five receivers ever. Uh, LT, Bruce Smith, Eric Dickerson. I'd definitely say that top five group is above the rest. Yeah. I think I think they're all cut above LT, but that's interesting. And to think, you know, one of the things I've tried to bring up over the last couple of weeks as we talk about some of the teams that have exited the playoffs is that your window of competing for a Super Bowl is often a lot shorter than you think it is. And that's something to definitely take into account looking at this Rams team, that if they lose the Super Bowl against New England, it took a lot to get them to the Super Bowl. It took, as New Orleans fans know all too well, took a call that was pretty blatant to not be called for them to make it to this Super Bowl. They have a young coach, young quarterback. They have all the pieces that you'd think would be a long-term successful team, and I think they, they have a great chance to be, but you never know. You never know what can happen if you don't take advantage of the chances that you get early on in these cycles. I'd even go a step further as to say your window, like you said, is smaller than you imagine, but as the NFL as a whole... After the Patriots finally move out of this, your window to win a championship is gets shorter and shorter as a team in the NFL. I mean, teams will not be able to put together a 19-year dynasty, a 20-year dynasty like the Patriots have. There's After this, your window to win a Super Bowl just based on the NFL might be two years, three years to be generous. So combine that with your individual team's success to winning a Super Bowl— you just got to get lucky and be on the right team at the right time. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Turning to the matchups this weekend, Elon and William and Mary, both very winnable games. You're on the road, but is this the type of stretch now, surviving some of those second half woes the last couple weekends? Is this a stretch that could kind of differentiate this Delaware team? That could, well, this that could confirm that they are not a middle of the pack CIA team, not a bottom of the pack CIA team but one of the best CAA teams if they come out of here with two wins. Well, this is their season right here for multiple reasons. The bottom teams in the CAA, they beat one, lost to the other, and JMU and Towson. Elon and William Mary are right with them. If they uh, – right with them at the bottom of the CAA. Yeah. If they yeah, those are the four worst teams in the CAA. Can't beat Elon and William and Mary the second time around – and in people's minds and in fans' minds, and they look back on the last Delaware games and they see a blown win against Towson, an almost blown win against James Madison, losses to Elon and William Mary away the second time around seeing these teams. And a one-point win against Drexel. And a one-point win against Drexel. They're going to be like, no one cares anymore. Delaware, just put them, they have a good record, we'll peck them down at the bottom. Should they win, Delaware's 8-3 and three in the CAA. They've beaten they the two good. of the bottom teams. They've beaten Towson. They've beaten Drexel. They're 4-1 they in or their last five games. 4-1 yeah. <laughs> in the last five games. Their one loss came against two missed free throws at the line, given it shouldn't have gotten to that point. But they lost with two free throws on the line. Now it's a real team. Now they can look at Delaware seriously. I think that's a spot-on point. Delaware would be 16-8, and 8-3. Eight, eight and three. Did you think that was possible? Coming into this season, to to look at that as a possibility, a little past midway through. Yes, but I'm surprised at where the other teams fall around them. Okay, yeah. Yes, I'm surprised Delaware is here, given on how the CAA has shaped up to be. But no, I'm not surprised that Delaware is six and three with the possibility to go eight and three. 
Delaware beat both Elon and William & Mary the first time around. Both games were at home. They beat Elon 77-65 to on January 5th. They beat William & Mary in a very good but close defensive game, 58-56. to That was back on January 3rd. Between the two teams, Jake, safe to say William & Mary is probably more dangerous than Elon? William and Mary is probably more dangerous than Elon, yeah. But I think that's the one that's probably a little bit tougher. But that's a Tribe team that's now on a five-game losing streak. So that's one of the things that has surprised me. I thought William and Mary would be better in the CAA. I think everybody thought Charleston would be better than what they are right now. They're 16-6 and overall, but just 5-4 and in conference play. That is a team that beat Delaware in CAA action. Uh, But looking at the top of it now, if they win this weekend, both games, Delaware would be locked in at least for a tie at second place, but probably lone possession of second place in the league, behind with only the, Hofstra. And Northeastern And Northeastern would be on their tails with Charleston. We'll see what happens with Drexel and UNCW, but I would probably expect those teams at fifth and sixth to kind of fall off the top four, mm-hmm. and you'd be left looking at Hofstra, Delaware, Northeastern, and Charleston as your most likely CAA contenders. Yeah, we're the we're the second best team there, um, and I think that when Hofstra comes to town, we are going to play them much better than we did on Long Island in Hempstead against them. Can't play them any worse, right? Can't play them any worse. You can't shoot zero for sixteen and two for twenty six. That was ninety one forty six. Right. It was a one of the worst shooting performances I've ever seen by any basketball team paired with perhaps the best shooting performance I've ever seen with any basketball team. And this, and I watched the London Olympics where Carmelo Anthony <laughs> hit eleven of his first thirteen threes, like it was nothing. Um, this, right. it's like uh, Clay Thompson the other night yeah. with like zero dribbles, hits and like four five, or five straight threes. Yeah. This Hofstra team is going to be Justin Wright, Foreman led, and as of now, if I needed to pick a champion, it would be Hofstra. You'd but ha- you'd they hard have, pressed to find anybody that would pick. They against have them. weaknesses, and it's in big. Like font, everyone else. It's Justin Wright Foreman, and that's pretty much it. Not that the rest of their team is bad, and we shouldn't underestimate them, but if we can find a way to slow down Justin Wright Foreman so he's not 27 points per game, he's only 20 points for that game, kind of like teams do with us in the beginning of the year. If we can find a way to slow down Eric Carter, then we can win. It's kind of the same thing for Hofstra. Yeah, right, Foreman right now, head and shoulders above everybody else in the CAA. At 26 points per game now, but he's scored as many as he's scored over 40 in games this year. He leads the CIA in scoring. Their second leading scorer is Eli Pemberton. He's a junior. He's 13th in the CIA at 15.8 points per game. But then after that, third leading scorer is at 9.6 points per game. Does your we? So it's it's right foreman. I wouldn't worry too much about Eli Pemberton. He's a good shooter. He can certainly score, but. If Eli Pemberton beats me in a game, so as the it. saying goes, like, okay, we lost. Uh, it really comes down to what do you do defensively against Justin Wright Foreman. Of course, plenty of time before we would re- really get to that matchup. It's actually going to be fun to see how they stack up because we get them March 2nd right. at the pop. So literally days before the CAA tournament, we're going to get a look at how Delaware stacks up against Hofstra directly. You know, It's going to be that same Delaware team that plays in the CAA tournament. If there's injuries, anything like that, we'll know of it by that point in time. But the task at hand now is proving week in, week out, that you are one of those top CIA teams. And it starts by beating two teams that you should, but doing it on the road 
and overcoming a little bit of adversity in the last couple of games where you've let teams come back in on you. Do what you got to do. Be the teams in your schedule. If you want to be a competitive team, that's how you do it. One other quick takeaway as we wrap up this segment here on Blue End Sports Cage on WVUD. It would be a monumental collapse for them to be playing in the first round, to be one of the bottom four teams at this point. Right. They're 6-3. and three. The 7th and 8th place teams in the CAA are William and & Mary and Elon at 3-6. and six. So should Delaware hold on to that standing as one of the top six teams, it would be the first time playing not in the first round of the CAA tournament since the 2014-2015 season. Every year that I've been here, every year that you've been here, they've had to survive that first round game, and then they get matched up against one of the top seeds in the tournament in the second round. On pace to be one of those teams matched up with one of the bottom teams in the second round. So that's something fun to keep an eye out for too. And should they do that, I'm just trying to think potential matchups and potential finishes for Delaware. I'll give them some leeway of a collapse and play, put, put Delaware in third in the CAA. Uh, not a monumental class, but a collapse, put them at three. And they're tied for second. So right. That's they, just the one spot right down there. Northeastern yeah. takes the lead. So they would get the bottom four teams play. They'll probably end up going William and Mary-esque, uh, maybe a little better in, Dres- in Drexel, uh, because the two teams below them will probably be UNCW and Charleston, and they'll play against each other. So we'd be looking at Drexel and William and Mary, maybe Towson if they yeah, play I mean, better. All, everybody's bunched up there. I don't mind that. I, the team that I wouldn't want to see out of all those is Towson. Towson has played us well and has had our number the last three times we played them. I've called the last three Towson games, and it just hasn't been pretty. Um, but th- out of all those, Towson would be the team I didn't want to see. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Time to turn our attention to Delaware women's basketball now, who completed their first perfect weekend of CIA play, defeating UNCW, which had been third in the CIA coming into the weekend. They defeated UNCW on Friday, and then coming back and taking care of Charleston on Sunday in convincing fashion. I talked about it a little bit on Monday's show, and you can check that out on Monday's pod, wherever you find your podcast. But Jake, uh, kind of your takeaways, take us back through Sunday's matchup against Charleston, and then we'll work back to UNCW on Friday. Charleston was just a good game. Um, the notion that it is no longer the Phil Nicole and Obosi's absence has been seen. Uh, Simone DeFries, uh, even Bailey Cargo for the minutes she played, Abby Gonzalez, um, are all kind of stepping up into their own right. Simone DeFries had a great game with the career high against the UNCW team. They're not as bad as we thought, I guess is a nice way to put it, but they're finding their identity and they're trying to play Delaware basketball and not missing Nicole and Abosi basketball. Yeah, and I didn't think they'd be as bad as they showed early in CIA play when we really got on this team, and I still think for good reason. They went a stretch of five straight games where the highest they scored was 53 points. That that's abysmal, and it hadn't been done before in CAA history since this team joined the conference in 2001. But you've sensed, okay, at some point they have to get something going a little bit. There are too many talented players left from last year's team that were real contributors that have done absolutely nothing that have to get something going. And that's what you're kind of seeing, what you said, with Simone DeFries and now Bailey Cargo. And Abby Gonzalez has been steady, but maybe she gets going a little bit here now too with some extra help offensively. 
DeFries looked a lot like herself from last year in those good games. She had good games and bad games last year, and there was a stark contrast between. She looked like herself in one of those good games when she scored 26 at the game that I was at against UNCW. So there's there's some reason for a little bit of optimism. Um, tell me if you disagree. I wouldn't say this is a team that all of a sudden is going to go win a bunch of tournament games. No. But round one it's win, fine. maybe. I yeah, mean, pin, pin them up at the bottom few teams. If Charleston's the team you play, that that shouldn't be bad at all. I mean, Darian Huff, they're probably and Deja Ford, their two leading scorers, were bad. I mean, it was an uncharacteristic game for the two of them, but Delaware played great defense against them. So if we pull a Charleston team, um, that's a lock in for a round one win. Listening to Blue End Sports Cage on 91.3 WVUD, taking a look at those CAA women's basketball standings, James Madison, Towson, Drexel, all a cut above the rest of the pack. Then you get to UNCW and William & Mary, tied for fourth at four and three. Northeastern and Delaware, tied for sixth at three and four. And then it's those teams that you'd feel comfortable against. Elon, 2-5. and five. Hofstra, who was Delaware's first win in CAA play at 1-6. and six. And Charleston, who they just destroyed on Sunday at 1-6. and six. So they could end up as that seventh seed playing the tenth seed in the first round. You'd probably feel good about that matchup. But then they'd have to come out of it and play a team like James Madison or Towson in round two. And that's going to be a pretty big mismatch. Yeah. They just don't have a yeah, they don't have they a star to up. go up against Camilla Smalls. Yeah. If if that's the matchup in round two. They can't keep up. Um but I was talking to Parker on the broadcast and looking at the players that we would be losing next year. That's the silver lining in this. None of I mean Simone DeFries back. Gonzalez and Cargo back. Nicole and Abosi, hopefully back. Rebecca Lawrence back. I mean, we're missing Makeda Nicholas is probably the biggest name. That She's the only name. Really? Pretty much. Yeah, actually. It's just McKay and Nicholas. There's a few other uh, seniors on paper, but much like Kirsten West last year, there wasn't much, uh, I don't want to say need, but there wasn't much minutes being given to them. And put Lolo Davenport on that list of back. She's a freshman right. this year, tore ACL. I haven't seen her play at all yet. But there are a lot of people that you talk to that, thought she was the best of the three freshmen that Delaware brought into the program this year, including Jasmine Dickey and Paris McBride, who, to mixed results, have been contributors at time for this team. Dickey has the good counting stats, so she's got a bunch of CAA Rookie of the Weeks. McBride had 12 points in, against Charleston, showing some promise as a point guard, maybe best suited as a backup kind of combo guard moving forward. But if Lolo, if Lolo Davenport is something for this team, if she's a little bit of a scorer out there on the wing in the in the Simone DeFries role, then that's another added player to this core that's all returning. So there are pieces in place for this team to be successful down the road. A little bit, I guess, you'd like to see a little bit more earlier than we saw in this CAA season, but still plenty of time left to keep building on what they do have here and then hope that they can add a little bit to it for next season. Little note on Paris McBride. She's really energetic. She's very You have to be very when that size. Energetic, yeah. Five four on paper. Um there were a few plays where she was yelling and screaming and she wasn't even involved in the plays. And that's just the energy you need. And I can only imagine and it stinks that I'm already looking towards next season because this season's not done, nor is Delaware officially out of anything. But to have a starting five of 
I mean, just spitballing here, uh, Cargo and Gonzalez, but we know uh, Bailey Cargo has her hot and cold streaks. Then Simone DeFries, Nicole Nabosi, and Rebecca Lawrence, like... Or Davenport in there for Lawrence. Or Davenport for Rebecca Lawrence. That might not be the best in the CIA, but that's a good starting five. I mean, we in the time that Nicole Nabosi's out, we might have forgotten that she was scoring on triple coverage. Like, this is a player who adds so much to a basketball team that no matter who the supporting cast is around, and it's even better now that Simone DeFries is getting into her four and that we're going to have two senior guards that have played all four years to go alongside her this season or next season, just looks so much more bright. 